man standing over there in the corner greeting that choir as they were coming out reminded me that in my first church, I didn't greet that many people after church on Sunday morning. My, how times have changed. Good to see everybody this morning. Good looking crew here. Our Bible is going to be open to Acts chapter 12. This is the final message in our Multiply series, this incredibly important middle section in the book of Acts. And we've got a few things that we're going to do a little bit differently in the first uh, two, two and a half months of 2018. Be a very important time in the life and future of our church. Uh, but at some point, we will return to the book of Acts for the fifth part, the fifth leg of our journey, our final leg of the journey as we look at the three missionary journeys of the great apostle Paul as we see the gospel go from Jerusalem through Judea, Samaria, as we've seen thus far, and then the final section we'll see the gospel go to the Gentiles, to the uttermost part of the world, and I'm really looking forward to that. And so thanks for your consistent faithfulness and attentiveness as we journey through one of the great, great books of all of the Bible. Uh, and today, we're going to look at a very endearing uh, passage that we love, one of the most important stories in the Bible about the church. And, you know, there are a lot of words that we would apply to Christianity. I always share the gospel uh, as a part of our Christmas program, and uh, usually whatever I say comes as a result of the focus of the song that's right before me. And I told this to the choir yesterday of they're singing a song about faith, I'll usually springboard off of the word faith. Or if they're singing a song about joy, I'll usually have remarks that springboard off of joy. Uh, and there are a lot of words that we would connect at the Christmas season and certainly in our walk with the Lord. And I think uh, one of those words is power. How many of you here this morning just need supernatural power in your life? Sometimes we need power just to make it through another day. Life is not easy. Life is difficult. And if there's one Christian biblical uh, concept that we all would agree that we need, it is the subject of power. And here in Acts chapter 12, in one of the great stories of the Bible, I love this story because it's a very serious story. It's kind of peppered with comic relief coming from Luke, who tells it in a story that puts a smile in a way that puts a smile on your face. But the great thing about this story, it's, a, it's just another in one of the Bible's many stories that contrasts human weakness and helplessness on the one hand and God's power on the other. You see stories like that all throughout the Bible where there's an impossible situation where human beings are weak and frail and powerless to confront whatever situation is standing in front of them, and then the supernatural power of God bursting through and shining through. That's really a focus of Christmas when you think about it. The whole world was helpless in the presence of sin. The whole world was powerless when it came to having victory in life and victory over the grave and a direct connection with God that had been broken and disrupted since the time of Adam's fall. But then there's that important biblical word, but. But when God's time had fully come, God acted and he acted in power. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to do only what God could do to redeem those under the law that we might receive 
the full status as sons and daughters of God. So as we go through this passage this morning, don't miss that contrast, the contrast between human helplessness and the mighty power of God. And for some of you, this will hit spot on this morning because you're here today, weak and wounded, as the old song says, sick and sore, desperately needing the delivering salvation power of Almighty God. We're in Acts chapter 12 and the first verse. Let's read some of this together. And we're going to stand in the presence of God as we honor the reading of his word. This is a lengthy passage. We'll read most of it and uh, get the biggest chunk of it out right here up front. Y'all ready to read? Say amen. amen. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Verse 7, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Father, this morning, some people here today need that kind of a divine intervention, that kind of a divine rescue. And we pray that as we move through this passage this morning, your Holy Spirit would speak to every single heart, regardless of where each of us may be in our walk with the Lord and fill us full of the power of the Spirit of God who alone can accomplish the supernatural and give us hope beyond whatever our here and now may be. And it's for Jesus' sake and his divine eternal glory we pray these things. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. Love this passage of Scripture. Here in Acts chapter 12, once again, we shift our attention to a different city. We now move from Antioch, where we were last week, 
seeing the newfound ministry of Barnabas and Saul there in a growing church and a thriving metropolis. Now we're back once again in Jerusalem, and the focus moves back once again to the apostle Peter. There is a Palestinian king on the throne. He is Herod. This is a different Herod. There are three or four of them that are mentioned in the pages of the New Testament. Herod the Great, of course. This particular Herod's grandfather was on the throne at the time of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this king, Herod Agrippa I, is ruling now on that same throne there in Palestine as a vassal of the emperor of Rome. And uh, he pretty much has the city of Jerusalem on lockdown. The church there in Jerusalem, of course, has been under persecution for some time. It was a persecution that ebbed and flowed, somewhat seasonal. But now it's back uh, to DEFCON 4 as Herod is seeking to placate the Jews. The thing about most every Palestinian ruler in those days is they loved the peace. Pilate loved the peace. He didn't want any rabble-rousers. And so in order to please people, he had Jesus Christ, of course, put to death. And Herod Agrippa I is the same way. The Jews were still not very happy with this Christian movement in its early days. And so because Herod wanted to keep them happy and keep them from being all stirred up. He tries to placate the Jews by tightening the screws on the Christian minority. And the first thing that he does here in order to do that is he has one of the apostolic leaders, James, the brother of John, arrested. And he puts him to death, the Bible says, by the sword, which basically means he had him beheaded. This is James, the brother of the Apostle John, one of the three most intimate connections with the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. He, of course, was close, Jesus was, to all 12 of his earliest disciples, but he was especially close to three of them, Peter, James, and John. This John, one of his closest friends, that's now arrested and put to death by the sword, and he's the first apostle to be martyred for the cause of Christ. And when that got rave reviews among the Jews, when the Jews applauded Herod, as most self-centered rulers are, he loved the applause of men, and so he decides to get even more aggressive, and this time he's going straight to the top. So he arrests Peter, the critical leader of the Jerusalem church, and he's got designs on doing the same thing to Peter that he did to James. The only problem was it was during the feast of the Passover, and it was against Jewish law to put people to death during the feast of unleavened bread. That's why Peter's in jail. He's in jail awaiting the passing of Passover, where once it's done, Herod would put together a very quick kangaroo court, have him tried, and with a fixed verdict, declared him guilty, and then he intended to take off his head. But here's something that Herod didn't know. What Herod didn't know was that while he had all of that conspiracy going on, he didn't know that the church was hard at work behind the scenes. They were tapping into a source of power that the king knew nothing about. Verse 5 is the key. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest what? Say it out loud. Earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. 
Very significant statement. And what's most significant about that statement is what it reveals about both the source of our power and the source of our effectiveness as individuals, as family, as the people of God. The church didn't take up arms. The church didn't organize boycotts. The church didn't have a set-in campaign in the lobby of Herod's offices at the palace. All those things may be appropriate in certain conditions, but most of the time, those are just angry responses meant to change somebody's mind. The church didn't do any of those things. What they did and how they responded is critically important. And what did they do? They gathered together and they what? Said out loud. They prayed. Samuel Chadwick, in his book, The Path of Prayer, says these words. The one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from prayer. Our enemy fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. Prayer turns ordinary mortals into men and women of power. It brings fire. It brings rain. It brings life. Prayer brings God. There is no power like the power of prevailing prayer. And brothers and sisters, one thing we know from sure, for sure from our study in the book of Acts is that the New Testament church, whether it was in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Antioch, or wherever, one thing we know is that that's one thing the early church clearly understood, that there is power in prevailing prayer. As John Stott says, prayer is the only power that powerless people possess. And I believe that to still be true today. I want us to notice this morning the pattern of the praying of the early church. Three very important things to notice about it. First of all, they prayed urgently. Urgently. Verse 5 tells us that the church was engaged in what kind of prayer? Earnest prayer. Circle that word earnest in your notes or in your Bible. The word earnest is a word <clears throat> that means fervently or energetically. It comes from a verb that means literally to stretch out, and that's what earnestness is. It means to stretch, kind of like what you see a plant do in a window that's flooded with sunlight. I'm told by botanists, if you want to keep a plant healthy that sets in a window that's flooded with light, you have to periodically turn the plant because what you'll see is the plant leaning against the light and the warmth of the window. So you periodically turn it around, and that's what the plant does. It stretches out toward the source of light and the source of life. And that's what the early church was doing, kind of like someone who's in a helpless, hopeless condition needing to be rescued. And a rescuer comes, and you all have seen this in action movies, right? There's always a stretching out of the hand. The rescuer stretches out his hand. The person needing the rescuing stretches out their hand, and both parties are stretching toward one another, trying to find a point of contact that results in deliverance and salvation. That's what the word earnest means. It means to stretch out toward life and light. And so you see that in the life of the early church. Luke's going to use the same word, earnest, of Jesus Christ 
When Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he died, how is Jesus praying in the garden? He's praying earnestly, the Bible says. Luke twenty-two forty-four. being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly and his sweat, how earnestly? His sweat became like great drops of what? Blood. That's pretty earnest. That's pretty fervent prayer. Great drops of blood falling to the ground. So it doesn't take much imagination to understand why the church was praying the way it was because they're in a desperate situation and only the power of God can change it. Luke goes out of his way in verse 6 of Acts 12 to stress just how thoroughly Peter was in prison and how thoroughly Peter was being guarded. Verse 6, now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Now normally when someone important was imprisoned, they were only shackled to one guard. In this case, we see Peter being shackled to two guards. That meant he was in a sitting position most of the time and he had a guard to his right and a guard to his left and he was chained physically to both of those guards outside of a closed locked door would have been posted two other sentries. Sentries. So he was guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Four of them would be on duty for a six-hour shift and then every six hours they would have a changing out of the guard. So this is what we would call maximum security. And the reason was because it's not the first time Peter had been in prison. And the last time he'd been in prison, he miraculously got out. And word of that probably still filtered around. And so they made sure that that wasn't going to happen a second time. And so what Luke's doing here is painting a picture of absolute hopelessness, absolute impossibility, total helplessness. And the only thing in the face of that that the church knew to do, the only power that a powerless church possessed was the power of prayer. And that's what they do. They turn to God in prayer, which turns out to be the best thing and represents a very important pattern that we see in the early church. How many times can you remember as we've journeyed along in this study where the church, the Bible says, was devoted to prayer? That's what the Bible says in Acts chapter 2. As we get a description of the early church, the church was devoted to prayer. In fact, there was a 10-day prayer meeting that took place in Acts chapter 2 before the Spirit fell at Pentecost. In Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John were released from prison, Peter's first imprisonment, the Bible says that <clears throat> the church gathered had lifted up their voices together to God in prayer. By the time we get to Acts chapter 13, we're going to see the church in Antioch, the mission movement of the church of Antioch, where the mission would then go to the ends of the earth. That church that birthed the modern missionary movement, birthed it through corporate prayer. And here in Acts chapter 12, when nearly everybody else in the city of Jerusalem was home asleep, we see this beautiful picture of prayer warriors who were gathered together urgently praying to God. And frankly, that kind of praying is something that many believers today really don't know a whole lot about. In his book, The Call for Spiritual Formation, uh, the theologian D.A. Carson says that if you want to embarrass the average Christian, just ask them to explain to you the patterns of their 
prayer life. He's got an interesting story in that book where he reveals the results of a survey that was taken at a modern American evangelical seminary, one of the great seminaries of the world, in fact, where students who were training to become missionaries were being trained. And the survey asked them to reveal spiritual discipline habits in their life. And from that survey, it was revealed that only 6% of those students training for the mission field, not 60%, 6% admitted to having regular quiet times of Bible study and prayer before the Lord. I find that astounding, 6%. And these are what we would call the elites. These are the called These are the ones that are supposed to be the committed. When Jesus taught us the value of spiritual discipline, one of the things that he consistently majored on was the discipline of prayer. His disciples asked him early on, Lord, teach us to pray, and he teaches them the model prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And Jesus had a lot to teach his disciples about prayer. He taught them how to pray, And he modeled for them how to pray by sneaking away regularly off to the mountains to be alone with God in extended times of prayer. You remember, for example, these words from Luke 11 where Jesus said, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and to the one who seeks he will find and to the one who knocks it will be open to you. You know why that statement is important? It's important because of the verbs. Ask, seek, and knock. Tenses are important, and those verbs are all in the present tense in the Greek New Testament. Anytime a verb is in the present tense, it reminds us that that's something that involves continuous action, something that we're to be constantly about doing. So if you were to render that in a kind of an amplified translation, what Jesus is saying there is ask and don't stop asking. Seek and don't quit seeking. Knock and knock persistently. Never stop knocking because the one who asks without stopping and the one who seeks God without giving up and the one who persistently knocks until somebody answers the door, that's the one who eventually receives and finds and is welcomed into the presence of God. A single knock on the door doesn't get anybody's attention. If somebody just does one knock on my door, I think it's my son falling off of the couch, not somebody at the door. No, what gets a person's attention is a persistent knock. Isn't that right? When somebody comes to your door and knocks over and over and over again to the point where you're ready to say, all right, already. I'm coming, I'm coming. That's the kind of prayer life that moves God who is always seated on his throne. This is how prayer and the power of the Spirit works. The path to prayer is not casual. It's not flippant. It's not intermittent. The path to biblical prayer is aggressive, fervent, earnest, it is urgent prayer. Pray urgently. That's what the Bible teaches. 
A second thing the Bible teaches from the pattern of the early church is to pray collectively, not just earnestly, but collectively. Now, when it comes to prayer, our first impulse uh, is pretty much to mind our own business when it comes to prayer, if we pray urgently at all. But that doesn't happen in an effective church. An effective church is a church that has people who learn not only to pray as a result of their own devotional time or as a part of their own devotional time, but a church that learns how to do it collectively, together, because powerful prayer comes when two or three are gathered in the name of God. Powerful prayer comes through agreement. Powerful prayer shares the burdens that we have with one another. And powerful prayer allows others to enter into the burdens that we carry in life. The Bible says that, bear one another's burdens. And praying together is a critical way that we do that. Who's praying for Peter here? I asked the question for a response. Who's praying for Peter here? The church together is praying for Peter here. The Jerusalem church. Verse 12 tells us it was in the house of Mary. Mary was the mother of John Mark, the Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark, a cousin to Peter and a cousin to Barnabas, the Bible says. So it's Barnabas's aunt and it's John Mark's mother. Probably was a very large house because it had a courtyard, we know that. It had a gate because it's that gate that Peter's gonna come up to and so it's a pretty large little house. Part of the church or a portion of the church evidently met in that house. And the Bible says it's here in that house that many were gathered together and were praying. Now, one thing that we know for sure is that this is the night shift. In fact, in modern parlance, we'd call this the graveyard shift. And the graveyard shift is praying earnestly together, trying to keep somebody out to graveyard. Y'all know what I'm saying? So this is the late night shift going on here. I have a feeling that there was probably a group of Christians, just like the changing of the guard at the prison, there was probably a changing of the guard at the house of Mary. There was probably Christians coming in based on work patterns, availability, uh, the size of the room, how many the room could hold. They probably had people coming, kneeling, praying together, calling on the name of the Lord regularly throughout the course of the given day. Here in Acts 12, we see those that are gathered together in the middle of the night. Luke goes out of his way, ever how you do interpret it, he goes out of his way to make sure that we understand this is a collective effort on the part of the people of God. What they're doing here is they're seeking God together. And listen, I know I've been around the block long enough to know that there are lots of people in the family of God that just don't like to do this. We're inhibited for many different reasons. I've had people tell me that, and I get it. We just, some of us just don't like praying together, and we don't like praying together for a lot of different reasons. There's an adequacy issue in the life of a lot of people. I just don't think I'm adequate to pray together with others, or I just am too shy to do it, or I don't know the right words, or I don't know the right formulas, and I'm afraid people will laugh at me even if they do it uh, in a way that I can't necessarily see. Well, let me just say this morning, I don't think that all of these people here had it all together either when it came to prayer. Can I make a statement this morning? I don't have it all together when it comes to prayer. I've been a Christian since I was just shy of 12 years old. 
There's never been a time in my life that I haven't been in church. I was in church when I was in my mother's womb. So I've been in church my whole life. I've been born again since the time I was just shy of 12 years old. I've been a minister of the gospel for over 25 years, and I'm still learning how to pray. I still don't have it all together, even in terms of how often I pray, how long I pray, how urgently and consistently and effectively I pray. So none of us ever fully arrive here. And I don't think these people had certainly fully arrived. They, most of them were infant believers. They didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have all this stuff that we tend to have in our Bibles today that give us these wonderful teachings about prayer, uh, right words, right formulas, all that stuff. You know the fundamental difference between us and them? Are y'all still with me? Say Amen. You know what was different? They had a tyrant breathing down their neck. And we don't. And maybe that is a large part why we don't often pray urgently and we don't pray any more together than we do. But I would like to think if there ever came a time that we had a tyrant breathing down our neck, If a group of armed guards came through those doors, walking right toward this pulpit, and they put your pastor in chains and shackles, which I hasten to add, I hope never happens. But if it were, I'd like to think that my church would come together around the clock and start calling urgently and collectively and togetherly on the name of God. They were praying this way, I think, because they were totally helpless. And most of us in the Western church are not totally helpless, at least in terms of the way we see our own life. See, the only difference between us and them, they just knew they needed power. They knew life and death were literally on the line. And you know what they knew? They knew that they were in a war. They were in a war. Most Christians in the Western church today treat prayer. I was reading a little article by John Piper, and he said most of us treat prayer as a domestic intercom. Now, most of us don't have those. I remember back in the day, that was a big deal in houses that were being built in the late 60s and early 70s. You know you had arrived if you had a domestic intercom so that you could just hit a button and talk to somebody in a bedroom upstairs, right? And that's the way we tend to treat prayer, like a domestic intercom. We just hit the button, call the guy upstairs, and give him a want list, a wish list, a Christmas list. That's the way we tend to treat prayer. But Piper says prayer is not a domestic intercom. It's a wartime walkie-talkie. You may have seen Ken Burns' magisterial uh, series on the Vietnam War that was on PBS over the last month or six weeks or so. If you haven't seen it, you need to watch it incredibly visceral, incredibly moving. And all of us remember those war images of those guys on the battlefield carrying those big telecom, you know, walkie-talkies. And that's what prayer is. Man, you got explosions going on all around you, and life and death is on the line, and you understand that you're in the middle of a war. And let me tell you something. Until you realize that life is a war, you'll never understand what prayer is for. In fact, can we just say that together? Repeat after me. Until I know that life is war. Say it. Until I know that life is war, I'll never know what prayer is for.
I'll never know what prayer is for. And that's the difference between us and them. Because they knew that. They knew they were in a war. And learning to pray with others in a time of war, as well as praying in your own devotional life, brings tremendous power. One Sunday morning, the great British pastor Charles Haddon Spurgeon was asked by an American pastor who was visiting his church on the Lord's Day, what's the secret to your success? In the late 1800s, of course, Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London preached over 6,000 people without amplification. And he had an American friend that was visiting him, himself a pastor, and he said, what's the secret to your success? And Spurgeon said, come with me. And he took him down to the bowels of the church on a Sunday. And down in the lowest room of the church were 300 people. 300 people. I didn't have 300 people in my first church. But there on the Lord's Day, as thousands of people were gathering in the worship center, there were 300, over 300 people gathered together down on their knees. And they were praying for what was going to happen in the church that day. And Spurgeon looked at his friend and he said, well, you want to know the secret of our success? Here it is right here. Spurgeon called that the engine room, the engine room. And he made no bones about it. If you want to know the secret to what God has done and is doing in this place, it's because of what happens. Spurgeon said, it is in the spirit of prayer that our strength lies. And if we lose this, the locks will be shorn from Samson and the church of God will become as weak as water. Pray urgently. Pray collectively. Everybody with me so far, say amen. And then finally, pray faithfully. Pray faithfully. And what I mean by that is don't give up praying. Never stop praying even when you don't understand what God's doing. Never stop praying, even though you don't feel like God is answering. Never stop praying, even though sometimes you might end up disappointed because God not, isn't moving on your timetable. The church didn't pray perfectly, that much we know. But they did pray faithfully. And they prayed faithfully even though they didn't always understand. In fact, I fully believe that many of these people who are gathered together praying here likely and largely doubted that God was going to even get Peter out of prison. And you know why I think that's true? It's because they probably did the same thing for James and he lost his head. I mean, don't you think they were gathered together when James was arrested? Don't you think they probably responded in the same way and prayed for James, who was a very critical leader, to be released? And yet, God in his sovereignty didn't release him. And as a result, some of these people are probably like us. They didn't understand the sovereignty of God in prayer, and maybe they wondered if prayer actually did any good. Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever wondered whether or not your prayers were effective? Whether your prayers mattered? I used to pray so fast when I was a little boy. To this day, I can remember my, my grandmother at the dinner table saying, Jimbo, I don't think that prayer ever made it to the ceiling. 
You ever felt like your prayers never got past the ceiling? I think all of us have felt that way, and I think many of them probably did as well. But the beautiful thing about this is even though God didn't always respond to their praying in the way they thought he should, the beautiful thing about Acts 12 is it's a reminder that they didn't get mad at God and quit. They didn't lose their urgency. They didn't lose their fervency. They didn't shake their fist at God. They continued to faithfully pray, even though they didn't always perfectly pray. And we know that because when Peter was eventually delivered, we read about that a moment ago, when he was released, he came to the house of Mary, and what happened? Nobody believed it was him. See, this is the comic relief that Luke kind of inserts. He wants there to be a smile on your face when you read this because they're praying for his release. God answers the prayer. Peter comes to the house, and the church thinks that he's dead. And when they finally are convinced that there's somebody out there, they really don't believe that it's Peter. They think it's his angel that's appearing. Look at verse 13. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. So first they said, you're wrong. And then they said, you're mistaken. But Peter, say it out loud, continued knocking, which is what we're supposed to do when we pray. And when they opened, they saw him and were what? Amazed. Couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe that God had actually responded well to their prayers. Listen, they didn't pray perfectly, and that ought to be an encouragement for you and me. Don't let anything keep you from praying. Some people say, if you don't have a deep enough faith, you ought not even bother to pray. I've heard people actually say that. God's not going to respond to your prayers if you don't pray with a deep enough faith, if you don't believe unswervingly. And listen, the Bible teaches we ought not pray with double-minded thinking. I understand that. Faith is important. But this passage teaches that these people didn't necessarily have the deepest faith, but they still faithfully prayed. And I think that ought to be the pattern of every Christian life. Don't fall into the trap of thinking, I don't have enough faith or I don't believe deeply enough, therefore I can't pray or I shouldn't pray. Remember what the Bible says in Romans about imperfect praying. Romans 8, 26, <clears throat> likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself, what? Intercedes for us with groanings, too deep for words. One of the most beautiful designs that God engineers into every Christian life is he outfits every disciple with a prayer partner called the Holy Spirit who's living within you. And the beautiful thing about the Holy Spirit is he's, the, he's, he's God the Holy Spirit. 
And so we've got God, the Holy Spirit, as our perfect prayer partner. And the Bible says that if we just simply remain faithful in our prayers, the Holy Spirit helps us in our times of weakness, in our times of lack of wisdom, in our times of imperfection, we have a Holy Spirit who intercedes. In other words, he stands in the gap for us and he makes up what's lacking in our lives so that our prayers are in some supernatural way presented perfectly before the throne of grace. Man alive. And you know what that means is, that means you really can't lose as long as you faithfully pray. So don't let the fact that you don't know the right words or you don't know the right formula stand in the way because the Bible teaches just be faithful because you really can't lose as long as you pray with clean hands and a pure heart. And just as the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, <clears throat> in our weaknesses, we need to learn to trust the sovereignty of God in prayer. That's a lesson for prayers today. Because God's not always going to answer your prayers like you want him to answer your prayers. And here's the thing. That's always a good thing. We don't think it's a good thing. But we don't think it's a good thing because we really don't trust God. That's the bottom line. When God says no to your specific request, that simply means that God has something better for you. That God has something more perfect for your life. Because God can see beyond the immediate horizon, you and I cannot. And that's a reason to rejoice. And those who are maturing in their walk with the Lord learn to not get all bent out of shape just because God doesn't respond 100% to the wish list that we give him every single time. Let me ask you a question. Why did James die and Peter live? I don't know. I can't answer that question. And they probably wondered the same thing. The only thing I know is that God was working in both of those circumstances. God was accomplishing his plan in both of those. God was working out his perfect will and his perfect plan in the death of one and in the release of the other. And here's the thing about James. He didn't lose by dying. He simply closed his eyes in a war-torn world and opened them up in the presence of glory. He didn't lose a thing. In fact, James was the real winner in all of that. Herod thought that he was the victor. And in reality, James was the real winner. I've told you all before, I've prayed for some crazy things in my life. Have you ever prayed for God to do something very specific only for God to not do it? And then years later, you look back and you say, thank God. <laughs> Boy, I sure have in my life where God has said, you know what, Jim, I'm not going to do that. I, you know what? I appreciate your heart and I know that you're sincere, but I love you too much to do that in your life. And a lot of times when God responded that way, I would turn and walk away after a period of time and I'd be upset, I'd be de depressed, I'd be disappointed because I didn't get my way in the situation. You ever been like that? And that's because my faith was misplaced. I had a greater trust in what I wanted from God than I did trust in God alone. And see, that's what we have to learn. We have to learn to trust God 
regardless of how he responds to what we're asking him to do. That's praying faithfully. Learning to pray for God's best rather than our best. That's the way Jesus taught us to pray in the model prayer, wasn't it? How did he teach us to pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's praying God's best. Jesus prayed specifically in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, let this cup pass from me. God didn't let the cup pass from him. And Jesus was okay with that. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He prayed specifically, but he prayed ultimately for God's very best. I think Peter fully understood that. It's always amazed me. Did you notice here? What was Peter doing when he was rescued? He was sound asleep in the jail cell. I mean, knowing that he's going to be executed, he's sleeping like a baby. Would you be sleeping like a baby if you knew that you were going to die the next day? I probably wouldn't be sleeping like a baby. And yet when the angel comes in in the middle of the night, he's sleeping so soundly, the angel has to kick him in the ribs to wake him up. And it takes him a while to come to his senses and to realize the gravity of what's actually taking place. No stress, no anxiety, no apparent worry of any kind. It's amazing. So let me suggest this morning that he's sleeping because he had an absolute trust in the sovereignty of God. He wasn't afraid to die. Now, I'm sure he wanted to get out alive, but so did James. And Peter knew that even if they killed him, because just like his dear friend James, he knew he would close his eyes and wake up in the eternal presence of Christ. That, brothers and sisters, is praying with a big faith, praying with a trust in God more than in a trust in terms of how God responds to the request that you make him in life. You have to trust God's always in control. And I think this church was learning to do that. We live in a world of helplessness, hopelessness, turmoil, and fear. And in that kind of world, what we need more than anything else is the power of God. And the only way to find it is through urgent, often collective, always faithful prayer. It's become kind of a cliche, but it's true. You're never taller than when you're on your knees, and you're never stronger than when you decide to pray. The Bible says it, and we believe it. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It was true then, and it's still true for your life and mine today. So let's be people of prayer now until we see Jesus. This is God's word, and all God's people said, amen. Let's bow our heads.